When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights, created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Orstano. I played Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I played Billy Riggins. The assumption is that you, our listeners, have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights which is currently streaming on Peacock TV because there will be spoilers in our podcast. And if you would like to support our show, please head over to our new YouTube channel, Clear Eyes Full Hearts. Right now, we're releasing new episodes of the podcast every other week. That's right. We recap all your favorite episodes, chat with some amazing guests, and... Answer your questions. Email us what you want to know at clearizefullheartspod at gmail.com. Today, we're here, guys. Season four, episode one. East of Dillon. It was written by Jason Kadams and directed by Peter Berg. The NBC synopsis says, Coach Taylor wonders how low his fortunes can sink as he struggles to pull the new East Dillon Lions team together and Tammy navigates the new politics at West Dillon. Executive producer and showrunner Jason Kadams will join us later in the episode. But before we chat with Jason, we're going to discuss this episode's highlights. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Season four. We're here. Season four. It happened. Real quickly, a little backstory about this episode, about this new season. Stacy just said in the opening to this episode, it was directed by Peter Berg. So this was the first time that Pete had directed an episode since the pilot. So that was pretty cool for all of us. Pete was off doing all these movies and for him to come back was kind of a big deal. So the day before we started shooting on this episode, Pete brought the whole cast together for a dinner in Austin, including the new cast members, which would be Michael B. Jordan, Matt Loria, Journey Smollett and Madison Burge. At this point, FNL had been running, as we all know, for three years and was a major critical success. I mean, we'd won an Emmy for casting and a Peabody Award for Best Drama, and several other awards for actors Connie Britton, Kyle Chandler, awards for Justin Reamer and Jeff Schwann for stunts. Jason Kadams won some awards for writing. So the show was fairly successful at this point. And we garnered a lot of attention in and around Hollywood as one of the best, if not the best, shows on television. So for those of us who had been around from the beginning, I think there was definitely a lot of, I don't know, would you say hesitancy, Stacey, around these new cast members? Questions, anxiety, what was happening? Not just because there were new cast members, but also there was some fear because the show was losing a ton of cast members like Scott Porter, Guys Charles, Minka Kelly, Adrian Palicki, Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Reiner, our executive producer and director had moved on to a different project. So it was like 
starting over from square one. Anyway, we had this dinner and Pete got up to speak at this dinner and had all of us go around the table, introduce ourselves. And then both he and Kyle and what, I don't know, I I can only describe as a a pregame speech, basically told all the new guys, hey, you are walking into a very special situation here and you've been given a tremendous responsibility that a lot of people have worked really, really hard over the last three years to create. Kyle let him know that his door was open at all times and Pete told him what he had told all of us on the pilot, which is, this is our show. Nobody pushes us around. In a nutshell, that speech could be boiled down to like, here's the keys to the Ferrari, don't wreck it. (laughs) And I kind of, in that moment, felt for these new cast members. I mean, there was a lot of weight on their shoulders coming into this season. And speaking from past experience as a guy who's guest starred on a lot of other shows, it's always difficult being the new kid on the block. I was really impressed by the way they all handled the responsibility. There was deference to the folks who had been there before, but there was also a sense of ownership and confidence in the way they embraced Pete's motto. Nobody pushes us around. There was a sense of pride, I think, from each of them, too, because they were fans of the show as well. So coming in and knowing the importance of it, it was weird finding our footing, but they fit. Everybody fit. I remember like bumping into Matt Loria before we even had the dinner. I bumped into him and he goes, hey, you're Billy Riggins. And I'm like, that's weird, dude. Like Michael beated that to me. He goes, I know you. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know you. So Matt was already a fan. Yeah. So it was kind of a weird situation because you got these people coming in who some of them had been watching the show for the last Mm -hmm. three years and and were fans of the show. A lot of changes. I give it to those people that we just named too, because I took that ball and ran with it. I mean, well, well, obviously we're going to start talking about it now, but such a fan. Okay. The beginning, we get Sam and Mead, we get a montage. Hardly any words are spoken. I can tell exactly where we are, where our characters are, what the feeling and the mood is. And it's just like, welcome back to Dylan. FNL does good montage, Stace. So, I mean, what we learned from that is that Landry has been transferred to East Dylan. Matt is graduated and now he's delivering pizzas in Dylan. Buddy is no longer the number one booster. That title now belongs to Joe McCoy. And Wade Aikman is now the new head coach (sighs) at Dylan High. And Eric Taylor is having to start all over again in a brand new school that has no money, a dilapidated field, and a raccoon-infested locker room. Mm -hmm. Season three, there was an engagement dinner that we filmed one night, the night that we were stupid and and couldn't stop laughing. And Mm -hmm. I went to go to the restroom and I opened the door and it was a hallway and there was a raccoon in the hallway and he screamed at me and I screamed. And then Taylor Kitsch called me a whiny baby. And I was like, but I have to pee. How is there a raccoon in the bed? Oh, that place had like an outside. outdoor thing. Yeah, it yeah. was outside. And I was like, I, he goes, just go pee. And I'm like, I can't. He's going to scratch my eyeballs out. Those are trash monsters. I read where the red fern grows. You don't want to mess with a raccoon. No, raccoons are trash pandas. <laughs> don't mess with them. I love that you got attacked. I do wonder if they were like, hey, remember when Stacy almost got eaten by a raccoon? We're going to put that in the beginning of season I love four. that. And guys, They're just terrifying. for you guys at home, the notes in our show this week say, I have a raccoon story. <laughs> it's Yeah, in parentheses, I put, I have a raccoon story. Okay, I'm going to apologize right now. It's only going to be this episode, but there's going to be a lot of me screaming out people's names because I was so excited to see these faces again. <laughs> and look at this baby-faced Michael B. Now the world's sexiest man. And he's just <laughs> a tiny baby. Little side note, I don't even know if you know this, Stacey, but I think it was As the World Turns or All My Children, one of those soap operas back in the day. Oh yeah, he was on with you, right? Yeah, I had done a soap opera back in the day, like small part, but Mike was one of the leads on like All My Children or something like that. Did you watch The Wire? Of course, yeah. Yeah. 
I didn't watch The Wire until after I met Mike, though. So Same. it hit me extra me too. hard. But I don't want to give anything away for those of you who haven't watched The Wire. But if you haven't watch watched it. The Wire, First when you're done with this podcast, go watch The Wire. Season one. Ah, it's brilliant. But anyway, I was on set this first day that Mike had when he's running from the police, that scene. They shot that in an alleyway that happened to be right down the street from Riggins Riggs. And we were shooting a scene in Riggins Riggs that day as well. I remember seeing that scene and I remember having hesitancy and and as you said, a little anxiety Mm -hmm. about all these new cast members. And I watched that scene and I went, Oh, this guy's good. The intensity, it's so good. So I was like, okay, check that guy off. He's not going to be a problem. I think he's <laughs> going to be fine. Like I was the the producer on set or something. You're like, like Mike's fine. Moving on to Matt. This guy's all right. Let's see what this uh, Matt Loria guy's got. Let's see what this Journey Smollett chick can do. Even though she's been working since she was two. Yeah, she started working when I was 12 years old. We'll talk about Eve's Bayou sometime, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Starting off with a bang. I usually skip over the credits. I'm not going to lie. I didn't mm-hmm. this time specifically to see how different it was. And I was thinking about the people who were watching this for the first time when it came out, like either DirecTV or NBC and how weird that must have felt or jarring with new names and new like montage faces. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about this season. I think that's just jarring. It's just different. It's a different yeah. show. It's a new show. It is jarring and I see how it will be jarring, but it feels so familiar to me because this is when I became more a part of the cast. So I have the opposite feeling of what I'm sure first time watchers had of me watching it now. Jarring is maybe not the right word because I do think that it's a smooth transition into this season, yeah, but, but it's it so is weird. like, wow, everything is completely and totally different. Yeah. But it's not like everything's different and I hate it. It's like everything's different. Everything's different for a coach. So we're following yeah. Coach's journey. Yeah. I think that's what it is, is that we're living it through Coach's shoes. You know, yeah. he came from this prestigious high school with this pedigree. And now it's all new. It's all different. Yeah. You know, that's, I think that is what it is. But I love the journey. I do. <sighs> this is one of my favorite seasons of the show. We'll see. I know a little bit. Okay. Mm-hmm. It seems that college and Riggins are not a fit. I love books and reading and throwing the books out of the truck. I'm not going to lie. It hurt my soul a little bit. It hurt my soul. And it also is a person who had to pay for those books when I was in college. It's just so much money. Oh, it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money out the window. I get it's symbolic though. Like I get he really doesn't want to do. Yeah. Grant, moving on. This is such a tiny thing. And I remember thinking it while we were filming that scene at our dinner table. I don't even know how to explain it, but it's like the way a Southern lower middle class family would set their dinner table. That's the way we did it at my house. And it's a stupid, silly thing of like, we would have a salad and we would have three, four different plastic salad dressings on the table. And then I would go later to my friends who like live East Coast or West Coast and they have like a wooden salad bowl and one dressing that they homemade together. And it was so much fancier. And I'm like, no, our art department knows that like, this is what this family would do at this table. And I remember it was like tater tots and something else. And I was like, yes, absolutely. That's what Mindy would make for these guys. Yeah. I also love that the art department came in, they repainted the walls, they hung Mm -hmm. up some drapes. And it's kind of like the Riggins house is getting a little feminine touch. Mindy went in and did some stuff. Yeah. But you can also tell that there's a lot of tension now between Tim and Billy because Tim's all of a sudden back in town and is like thinking he's going to stay at the Riggins house. You don't say a word in that scene. I forgot that. You had some feelings. There was some eyeball acting going on. That was good eyeball acting. (laughs) Good eyeball acting. I am going to call him Sears coach. I completely (laughs) forgot about Russell DeGrazer. So, so funny. 
I cannot believe I completely forgot about this character. He's giving me like tiny stalker vibes here that I super yeah. love. He's a great guy too. I got He's the opportunity so in the fifth season when I became a coach, spoiler alert, to work with Russell a lot. We had a great time and a great rapport on set. And he God, really is funny. fantastic in this part. Somehow to me, when the Panther Pizza Matt bus was pulling up to the McCoy house, it looked like eight times bigger than it did last season. I wonder if they like added an East Wing onto it. Like it looked massive. It did look huge, didn't it? And you said eight times bigger. And I think JD McCoy is like eight times bigger a jerk this season. Is that yeah, even a thing? A You'd be eight punk. times bigger a jerk. He's a real punk. But you got to think that some of that is probably because of the abuse that he gets from his dad at home. Hurt people hurt people, right? And with Saracen gone, he's the big cheese now, I guess. Yeah. Or he thinks yeah. he is. Ooh, I don't like mm. it. That whole family. Ugh. I don't like it. Oof. And then we go to the field for, I think, our first practice. And I'm going to tell you that I love Sears coach. I love Taylor having a yes man. Something about yeah. his enthusiasm and like repeating every word that coach said. I was out loud. Like, <laughs> he's great. I love Russell. I wish he worked more. I don't know why he doesn't work more. He does some theater work. Okay, good. Again, me just shouting out baby face, Matt Loria. They're mm -hmm. so young. I love him so much. Matt's good people. We're going to have him on the show soon, but he's mm -hmm. good, good people. What are you doing to Tim Riggins in our puke colored nursery? It's not puke. It's mustard. And I'm teaching him about personal responsibility with my fists. <laughs> I remember shooting that scene because Pete Berg was like, you know, I need this to get physical. And I was like, yeah, we'll do it. He's like, no, but I need it to get physical. And I go, I, uh, yeah, I will. He's like, no, but you need to get physical in this. And I'm like, Pete, I'm gonna. And so the first take that we had is when I pushed Taylor. He wasn't supposed to fall into that thing and break it into a million pieces. It was intense. But Pete was like adamant that I go physical. And I'm like, Kitch, you're cool. And he's like, yeah, totally. Yeah. So I hit Kitch and Kitch kind of stumbled, fell into that thing. It broke into a million. I don't even know what it was. It was like a plastic shelving unit. Yeah. That I guess we were going to put baby diapers on or something. <laughs> that thing broke into a million pieces. We shot the whole scene in one take and I got done and I was yeah, like, Pete. are we physical enough? We shot enough for you. Maybe it was a bit of an overreaction. I was not <laughs> expecting it to get physical at all. I was like, oh, brothers doing a nursery together. This is sweet. Oh, that's no, how the, this is That's not how the Riggins sweet. brothers paint, I guess. That color was really ugly, though. It <laughs> it was really gross. Inside, I was giggling when Kitch was going, oh, what is that, puke? It looks like, he just kept improving on it, it too. It's like, like diarrhea. It's like, he kept going and going. Yeah, He's not wrong. And Billy's just steam coming out of his ears. Meanwhile, <laughs> I got to say, Grandma Saracen telling Landry to stop throwing the football because he looks like a girl just made me giggle. So mean. It is. Also, she calls him funny looking. And yes. I think JD called him funny looking in this scene before. And I'm like, you yes. guys need to give Landry a break. And then later in this episode, somebody else. Oh, Calvin does it too. Calvin, Calvin Brown does it too. Yeah. Leave that man alone. I don't like that. But you know what, Stacey? You know who I do like? Do you love Grandma? Grandma Saracen. She's still Did great. You know that? And she <laughs> thinks that Matt's still playing football. I know. And Landry goes, Bless her heart. she seems to be doing really well. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Great comeback. I'm sorry, guys. It's only going to happen this episode, I think. But Alicia Witt, like what a get for our show. I've been a fan of hers for a bajillion years as an actress, as a musician. I adore her. And she like fits in really well in our small Texas town. She does. I think it's a perfect match for her to hook up with Tim in her first episode. Oh, boy. Oh, Again, calling out people I love. We just talked about Calvin Brown, number 23 on the East Island Lions is an actor named Ernest James. And you guys, Ernest is the sweetest 
most like zen joyful person you could meet he like makes you feel really calm when you're around him and he plays a real good baddie he really does this coach this get out of my house coach i think we've seen him get angry but i've never seen him topple over that line this is a coach that i don't know yeah i mean i remember him getting angry at smash a couple of times but it was more to like kind of put smash in its place yeah it had meaning yeah this felt more like territorial his livelihood being threatened maybe he needed to though like pee in the locker room yeah yeah but i was like this is my house if you're not going to be part of my team get out now i need to know now I'm not going to waste my time on you. I think Coach looks at his team as family. And so to have that kind of disruption, people not buying in, get the hell out. Because I can only move forward if you're on board. This task is like insurmountable. I know who they become. I don't know the journey of how they get there. It seems an impossible task to me at this point, at the beginning of season four. Oh, man. Again, shouting out Madison Burge, who plays Becky. I don't think I knew she came in this early. She's... (laughs) She somehow knows a lot about Tim Riggins and she, she doesn't even go. I think she goes to East Dillon, right? She doesn't even go to West Dillon. But she yeah, but she, says, I'm assuming went to Dillon when he was there and he was a legend. Says, What's you know? it like being the guy who used to be Tim Riggins? It's like, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that's tough. But I mean, that is the fact for a lot of these guys who play high school football is, you know, I mean, they were the big dog on campus and now all of a sudden they got nothing. I think we'll explore a little bit of that with Tim this season. I mean, I think we've seen a little bit of that with Billy, but we'll definitely get to see a little bit more of that with Tim. Like, who is he if he's not playing football? In the locker room scenes and on the field, I could see Tinker, but no one had said his name until coach. There was something at the end. He was like, you got that Tinker? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's it. This is the episode where they were lining up to get on the bus, the players, and Pete Berg just pulls LaMarcus Tinker out of the line and like fell in love with his look and his vibe and made him a character and gave him lines. Yeah, he was an extra when he started out and Pete Berg just loved LaMarcus. Loved him. And we started giving him lines and then the writers started writing for him. And the next thing you know, like we actually have a couple of episodes that are not Tinker centric, but he's He's definitely, he's a big part of the show. Oh, you guys, another one that's just, he's so damn fun to be around. He's very happy. (laughs) Fully not expecting calling the game, but looking into that locker room, there was a lot of blood in that locker room. That's a defeated crew. It's a defeated crew. And on top of it, I think coach made the right decision strictly for the safety of his own players. You can't get these kids killed. And sometimes the best thing to do in a situation like that is to just say, hey, enough is enough. They were down 45, nothing at half, which is- Yeah, but you don't come back from that. That is a, pardon my French, massive ass whooping. You're not coming back from that, number one. But number two, like you're playing with, I think there were 18 kids on the team. Mm-hmm. So that means all these kids, for the most part, are going both ways. That means they're playing defense and offense. You're going to get somebody killed. I couldn't tell if Landry lost a tooth or if he like bit his lip, but there was a lot of blood coming out yeah, of his mouth. Yeah, it seemed like he lost a tooth. <laughs> Coach goes to put his finger in his mouth. And you got to assume that Kyle Chandler just put his finger in Jesse's Absolutely. mouth. Not Jesse asking backed permission. away like, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> what a start to this season. Like, welcome yeah. to season four. This is where we're going. Yep. It's rough. I'm in. Yeah, this team is definitely not ready for state. Oh, God. <laughs> Here's something, just a little tidbit of info at the end of this episode. If you look at that last shot, the very last shot of this episode, you can see a building in the background off to the right that looks like it's probably part of East Dillon High School. Technically, it's the back of the bleachers to the Dillon Panther field. The art department literally created a fake exterior on the back of the Panther bleachers to make it look like part of East Illinois. So the Lions field is literally right behind Panther field. So I think that's kind of a cool thing. They must have like done something to 
mess up the grass and make it really disgusting and brown too. It's so perfect looking. They just cut the grass because it used to be like 10 feet tall. They cut it and that's what was underneath it. The cool thing is you're going to kind of see this change evolve, not just with the grass in the field, but with these players and with this town. I love it. I'm excited to get Jason Kadams on because I want to talk to him about all these changes that happened in yeah, season this four. Is all him. So guys, stick around. We got Jason Kadams coming up right now. We are thrilled to have Emmy winner, executive producer, and showrunner of Friday Night Lights, Jason Kadams, with us on the show today. Outside of FNL, you would recognize Kadams' work on a host of television shows. Jason was a writer on the critically acclaimed My So-Called Life, starring Claire Danes and Jared Leto. He was also executive producer and writer on the hit TV show Boston Public, as well as The Path, Pepper Dennis, Almost Family, and the creator and executive producer of About a Boy, Rise, As We See It, and of course, the award-winning NBC hit show Parenthood. Jason, thank hey. you so much for taking the time to join us today. I appreciate it. Billy, Mindy. <laughs> it's us. Is it okay? Can I call you Billy and Mindy? Of course. Please? Where we are in the show, we just got married. I'm a real Riggins now. <laughs> what? You're a real this, Riggins? This is true. Riggins. This is true. Right off the top, here's my first question. You're a Jewish baseball fan who was born and raised in New York City. How the hell did you wind <laughs> up being the showrunner slash head writer of a football show set in a mm -hmm. small town in Texas that's predominantly about Christians? I thought you said this was going to be a gotcha interview. Uh, <laughs> we start off right away. I'm starting out. I'm punching low. Here we go. You really got, you really like, you know, move right in on the, on the Jew thing right away. I, I'm half I, Jewish. I can get away with it, right? Together, Derek and I make a whole Jew. It's fine. It's true. Stacey and I make a full Jew. It's such a great question because I really like was not thinking that, you know, when I first heard about the show, I wasn't thinking this was a show for me for all those reasons. I'm a baseball guy, not a football guy. Mm -hmm. Grew up in Brooklyn, never really been to Texas. Maybe I like passed through a couple of times. Wasn't really like the small town experience was not my thing. And then what I found was when I read the book, I watched the show, I watched the movie, I went to Austin, I went to Texas. I just fell deeply in love with it. Mm -hmm. I really feel like that's one of the things about Friday Night Lights, because people talk about it being about, you know, the obviously high school football, talk about Texas and small town and all that stuff. But it's really like such an American story, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I felt like before Friday Night Lights, you were really hard pressed to find a television show that really represented Americans and America sort of almost embedded in sort of scripted television. There was a sort of sense of fantasy and sort of privilege, you know? Mm -hmm. And what was so amazing about this world was it was a world that was, you know, really honoring these people and this culture and wasn't trying to make it look like anything other than what it really was. So I was like super into that. That was about my desire to do it. Then it was like, well, how did I do it? And how did I get over like my sort of being so intimidated about entering a world that really wasn't my world? You know, first of all, it's kind of like we forget, like that's what writers do. <laughs> if writers didn't do that, like, well, we wouldn't have Friday Lights because Buzz Bissinger went to Odessa, Texas, and he embedded in that place and learned about it and wrote about it. It wasn't his world. He found yeah discovered it and found it. That's why we're having this conversation today, because it's what he did. And it's kind of what writers do. And I have one story about, you know, when I sort of signed on to do it, I went to the upfronts. Very soon after I signed on to do the show, I went to the upfronts in New York. And here is this beloved property, Friday Night Lights, and this beloved movie. And it was sort of on me to not f*** it up, basically. I had to go to New York and basically shake hands and 
say, oh yeah, I'm excited. Before I really found my own voice and how to tell the story, I hadn't gotten to that yet, but I had to like go right away. And there were suddenly like, I would, all these people, there were all these expectations on me. And literally there was an executive who pulled me aside and said, Jason, are you ready for this? Are you going to do this? In that moment, I realized this was my way in because it's exactly what Coach Taylor was going through. Coach Taylor was coming to this new town and this new team with the expectations of a state championship. First game, his quarterback gets paralyzed. The franchise is gone, but the expectations don't go away. That was like sort of my writer's way in. I had all these expectations on me to like deliver on this sort of beloved property, but tell that story in a new way as a television show, which obviously is very, very different than a movie or the book. It has completely different requirements of how to tell that story, how to tell mm -hmm. the story that would go on for hopefully seasons. But like, that was like my initial way in to this. Yeah. So I could write knowing like well, what it was like for coach to come into this place and have to like deal with, you know, walk into Matt Saracen's house in the second episode and see who this punk is and <laughs> 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 do it and have the buddy Gary's in the world and all these people. And then like the Tim Riggins get this guy who's more interested in anything else other than football. That was like sort of my way to enter this world and find my footing. Mm -hmm. How did it come to you? Did you know Pete Berg before? Had you worked together? How was it? So like what the happened package was I, yeah, what the way that it happened was I was walking on, this is really the way that happened. I was walking on the lot at 20th Century Fox, walking from like the writer's room to the editing room. And I ran into David Nevins. Yeah who was our kind of wonderful, at that time he was at American Television and he was our wonderful executive who was with the show for the run of the show. I ran into him and I knew him a little bit and liked him a lot. He asked me what I was doing and I was like, you know, I had just finished a long sort of overall deal at 20th and I was thinking I'm going to spend the next year sort of not taking a writing job. I was going to basically just spend the time to focus on what I wanted to do next. He said, hey, Jason, are you into football? I said, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever heard have you ever read Friday Night Lights or seen the movie I was like nope hmm. I was being honest I was like yeah. I wasn't looking for a job you know yeah. I was looking for <laughs> off so I wasn't like trying to impress him or whatever I was like no that's what I was thinking is that's not really for me like I don't mm -hmm. and then of course I sort of started to see what this was you know and mm -hmm. I read the book and I saw the movie and I met Pete and I understood like how incredibly special this was that's how I got involved it was really like it started with this like random meeting with David Nevins, then I met Pete and Sarah Aubrey and all those folks. Mm -hmm. And then next thing I knew, I was flying with Pete to Austin and he was like taking me around. This is before we started shooting. And he took me around to all the high schools in the area and met the coaches and met the players and sort of got the feel for that world, ate a lot of good barbecue. And <laughs> yeah. so, and then also, this was a little later, but then we also did like a deep dive into what Jason Street was going through. So we met with a lot of, that was another thing that we did sort of early on. I did that with Jeff Reiner, actually, where we met with a lot of people who had had spinal injuries who were, you know, going through rehab. And that was another part of my sort of entry into the world. And I remember, because it was so good, you know, like it was so good. And I was like, I needed to make sure this was something I was going to be able to come in and I was going to be given the tools I needed mm -hmm. to like, hopefully make the show really good. And I had two questions that were like deal breaker questions. And the first question was, will we be able to shoot the series in Texas? Mm -hmm. 
because it's like I felt like if you did this beautiful show and then suddenly you had to try to recreate it by shooting somewhere else, you would never be able to do it. Stacy and I talk about this all the time on the podcast that Texas is the 12th man on this show. I remember after we shot the pilot, there was this idea that maybe they would shoot in California. I don't think it's mm-hmm. the, sh- the same show at that point in time. Right. I there was really a lot don't. of, there was talk about all different places. And so that was the first thing was like, I need to know that we'd be able to shoot the show that way because I didn't want to be like the person who it up. You know, it's like the dream is always, you know, you take and build from the beginning and you make it better and better and better. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of about mm-hmm. Elias is that's what happened. The show grew and got better and better as we went. So the first thing was that we shoot in Texas. And the second question I had was what happens to street? If the idea was that this terrible thing happened to him in pilot and in episode four, he was back on the field. Like I couldn't do the show. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. like if this was going to be about a spinal cord injury and this was going to be about the story of the show, we had to really tell that story the way it would mm-hmm. really happen. And it went really against, I mean, if you remember, it was NBC. Like if you looked at the shows on NBC at that time, this did not feel, this felt like it would have been on HBO or something yeah. like that. Absolutely. An NBC show. So I felt like I really needed to know that we were going to be able to shoot and maintain the look of it in Texas and that I would be able to tell the story, what was the key story where the show started, that I was going to tell the story of Jason Street authentically and that we're going to do a deep dive and this was going to not going to be like, you know, the end of season one, Jason Street returns. walks again. Yes. I love it. So those were the two things that I sort of wanted to make sure we could do. And they said, yes, that's the story we want to tell. And that's how it got started. And once you get those two things, it becomes the story in some respects. Or not the story, but it becomes the the story that you want to tell. There was something you said earlier about Friday Night Lights being a slice of Americana, and I 100% agree with that. But one of the things that I found fascinating about this show and the life that this show has had is the people that I run into from other countries that are affected by it, which leads me to believe that what you were searching for and what I think you accomplished was you created truth. Because if there's truth, it transcends whether or not people understand football. It transcends whether or not people understand American life in a small town. So my gotcha question was getting to, you wrote truth and people can see that. And that's what I think is why the show has had the effect that it has. I mean, Stacey and I met a couple of footballers from Ireland that were like, Mindy and Billy. And these guys were (laughs) like diehard Friday Night Light fans. And I'm like, how does this resonate with you guys? And it's like, it's the same story that we have, you know, but for them, it's, it's soccer. It's, yes. you know, also, there's football. something about like you were talking about shows before it were aspirational, but they're like aspirational in terms of wealth. And this was aspirational mm-hmm. in terms of like coaching his wife, that yeah. relationship. I don't know that we've ever seen on TV before. Yeah. That relationship, but also every family in that show, if you look at those two brothers, the Riggin brothers or the Colette family mm-hmm. or the Saracen and his grandma, yeah. you know, you look at these families and you see America. I mean, you see yeah. like, it's not all like lead to beaver. You know, that's not real life yeah. is really like where you have like two parents and the loving family, you know, everybody's dealing so with a lot of complicated much. stuff. I think and everybody could find a, Oh yeah, that's me. That's my and It was raw. That was something I wanted to talk to you about because this is something Stacy and I have obviously discussed ad nauseum on this show that Peter Berg has a very unique shooting style. One of those things in particular is the fact that actors are allowed a freedom to improv. So as a writer, when you coming on board, knowing that that was going to be the case, how do you go into that? Because me personally, if I was a writer, I'd be like, no, you say the lines that I That's wrote. not what I wrote. Yeah. There's a little bit of sacrificing of ego there, I think, in the process. 
So how, that's got to be a balancing act, I would imagine. Yes and no. Yes and no. It all, it all really depends how you look at it. The way that I looked at it was we were telling a really important story mm-hmm. and that this is the way this story was being told. You know, it's weird. It's not really like giving over of ego because mm-hmm. the storytelling is so good from the script stage. Yeah. That's where the stories are. You know, you can go along and do incredible improv work day and night, but I, I'm telling you, believe me, that does not make a great television show. No. no. I, it was never really like a, an ego thing for me because I felt like the stories were always Told. Yeah, we, yeah, those stories were yours. Were always those scenes were always there. Yeah. No. As Stacy and I have always said on this, the story was written. It's not that we came in. We never came in as actors and created story with an improv. There was an improv, maybe, you know, something happened on set. And on a lot of shows, you would just ignore that little happy accident and keep moving or you would reshoot a scene. But then there were times on set on Friday Night Lights, there was an instance where Kyle stepped in dog poop. I remember this. And it was at the Riggins house as he was walking up and it was like, keep it. You yeah. Know, why would you not step in dog poop at the Riggins house? You know? Um, <laughs> There's those little happy, you know, little happy accidents, but it never changed the outcome of the scene. But on a lot of shows, it's like, no, there's three commas there. Hit those commas. Well, Um, yeah, that is true. And there's nothing wrong with that. Every show is different. Every show is its own thing and its own culture and has its Mm -hmm. own demands and whatever. In this particular show, what was done so beautifully was capturing life. And part of that was the freedom that the actors had. And it wasn't just the freedom of language. No, it was freedom of blocking and everything else. Yeah. And so for, I'm sure you've talked about this a lot on this podcast, but like one of the things about the way we shot was, although maybe you've talked about this already, so I, I don't want to cut No, it's it. all good. I'd love to you hear know, it from a writer's shot, perspective. You know, we shot with three cameras, mm-hmm. like virtually all the time, handheld. And the, my favorite thing was like the actors would refer to the cameras as snipers because they didn't know yeah. where they were. Yeah. Absolutely. So like incredibly different than most shows that are done. And when people say, oh, we're shooting like Friday Night Lights after Friday Night Lights came out, they're like, no, you're actually not. Even in stuff that I've done after Friday Night Lights, where I've definitely used a lot of the Friday Night Lights Parenthood, Um, there was, I mean, because I got to do an episode of Parenthood for you years later. And yeah, I mean, you guys utilized a lot of the shooting techniques. that utilized a lot of it. But the thing about, and in Parenthood, we probably went as far as anything I've done. Mm -hmm. At the time, we got really comfortable because when some of our directors were directing who were really familiar, they would go without rehearsal and all that. But that was the thing about Friday Night Lights that was so amazing is that there were no rehearsals ahead of time. Yeah, And the directors and camera operators were finding the scene as the actors were, and it came together. There was a magic to that that was so amazing. So much of the show was discovered in that way. And then the other part of it was you know, editing, because what would happen is, you know, you would have these scenes and the scenes, because there was so much improv and whatever, would expand. Mm-hmm. They yeah. would expand. And so you had to be comfortable with that. And I was comfortable with that. The editors... Probably, I probably a couple of editors in the process. Yeah. Supervisors um, and editors, maybe not so much. Yeah, because they, you know, because editing again became very much, and editing really is. I always talk about editing as the great secret of television because editing is really writing, you know. So editing is you're coming back and shaping things. Like cuts would come in 70 minute, 70 minute cuts, you know. Yeah, like, and the show know, needed like, to be 45. That, that be, and yeah. 
And that would be like normal. And that would be a 70 minute cut would come to me. So that's after the editor and director had, Jesus. you know, had wow. dealt with, there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of shaping that was done, but honestly it led to, you know, how great it was because you were yeah. able to really streamline it. The other thing about the show that was so great was the show had more storylines and characters at play than anything I've ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've done Parenthood had a lot of characters mm-hmm. and a lot of stories. Yeah. But Friday Night Lights, you can contain so many things. And I think that was what made the show so powerful. Also, when we shot the show, because we shot in Texas and because we shot three cameras, we shot in a very guerrilla kind of way. It's such a beautiful show. You wouldn't know how fast we shot, yeah. you know, and therefore how many scenes we could shoot in a day. And also being in Texas, you know, it's not like shooting in L.A. or New York where it's like anytime you want to move the trucks, it's like a half a day just to like back up a truck and move it three blocks. In Austin, it was just definitely by far the most exciting from a production and producing standpoint, the most exciting thing I've ever done. Our crew was crazy, like how quickly they moved. It was like, yeah, I remember like shooting one of the episodes I directed you know, I showed up at set, you know, we had like a 8 a.m. call. And like, before I even got there, they were setting up, it was a driving by the shot with the camera out to get one of those moving, you know, shots. Yeah, just like a second unit shot. Or- yeah, the call was eight o'clock. And the first shot was 801. Never, <laughs> never, yes. ever would happen. First shot done, wrapped. <laughs> there were numerous days on that show where my call time would be like 10 a.m. And I'd get a phone call at like nine. And they're like, hey, we're moving really fast. Yep. Can you come Can in you early? early? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so the only show I've worked on where that's happened. Right. So that's great for so many reasons. But I wanted to talk about one of the reasons why it was so great. One of the reasons why it was so great was, you know, a million reasons it was so great. But one of the things that was so great about it is, you know, we never built a set on Friday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. Only thing that we had close to a set was we had the field and the, mm-hmm. and the stadium the, yeah. house, you know, but that was obviously real places that we had and we owned, but we never built anything. And so no. that means everything was practical. And that was one of the things that was such a beautiful thing about the show. Like, People would say to me, like, you know, one of the early episodes we did, a scene we did in Smash's house, and they were like, oh, my God, I love that shot through the window, through the you know door window. I was like, well, well there's no room <laughs> to put the camera. Yeah. Put a camera, we, you know, that was the only place we could put a camera. Like, we had to shoot through the window. And as an actor, I mean, it was like even walking into the Riggins house, it was an all-factory nightmare. So you'd walk in there and, and you'd be like, okay, it feels like I am in a gross lift-in place. Right. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. They do all your prep work for you. you <laughs> exactly. Okay, exactly. I am now Billy Riggins. Yeah, theater of the senses, 100%. <laughs> yeah, it smells like crap. It looks right. like crap. It feels like crap. Yeah. I'm home. But one of the things I want to say, this is one of the fringe benefits that you would never really, you would never really kind of know, you know, about that, which is that because we didn't build anything and because we moved so quickly, we weren't tied to our set. So normally when you do a show, you build certain sets and they always try to move you into those stages. What are you going to build? Well, on Friday nights, we would build the Taylor house. You know, we build the field house. Yeah. We build a couple of swing sets. And then you'd be like, oh, we got to shoot there. You know, we built the sets. You know, you, you know, shoot yeah. There. You would have built the high school, at yeah. least a, a couple of hallways, you know. Right. Yeah. But because we didn't do that, it did not necessitate us shooting anywhere. Wherever we were going to shoot, we we're going to shoot. So I'll tell you like one benefit of that. So one of the stories I always talk about, about doing the show is Tyra Collette. Because to me, it's one of the big triumphs that I'm most proud of. 
that character and her journey. Because in the pilot episode, nobody knew who Tyra Collette was. These are all questions I had for you, actually, specifically yeah. about Tyra, about all these characters that were essentially yeah. stereotypes so that Tyra you guys like, fleshed out and made three-dimensional. So Tyra was like a hot girl. She was mm -hmm. the hot girl in town. That's who she was, you know, yep. flirting with Smash. I mean, lovely and charming, but not like, mm -hmm. who was she? And no idea. Yeah. And then we were in the room, you know, writer's room, you know, trying to figure it out because... You know, you can't have a game in every episode, right? There's only so many times the Panthers can win or lose in the last <laughs> seconds. There's only so many variations on that theme. And we also didn't have the budget to shoot those big games every episode. Mm -hmm. So, you know, basically the show was going to be about these characters, about these people, not really about football. I mean, obviously football was the engine. Football was beautiful. It was mythic. It was great. But this was a story about these people, right? So we had to know who they were. And so with Tyra, like, I didn't really know who she was, you know? And then we started to think about her in the writer's room and started to come up with, like, you know, the idea of her mom and her sister and, you know, where she came from and where she lived and all this stuff. It was, like, exciting, but I was still trying to figure it out. And then we shot that house, the Colette house, with Minnie and Angela and Tyra. And it was this incredible location out in so such a beautiful house outside of Austin. So far. <laughs> and, and it was just so perfect. And then you had Angela and, you know, this family. And I remember, like, I watched that scene, that first scene that you guys did together. And I was like, oh, I know who Tyra is. Literally, it was like, that's how I understood. I understood everything. I understood mm -hmm. the beauty of that family, the idea of why it was hard for Tyra to manifest, become something different than what the world expected her to be. Yeah. You know, and I saw both the beauty of that family and, oh, yeah, it's awesome. and, humor and the, all that stuff, but then also the challenges of being, you know, a girl in that family. Dana and, and I always said our place was to show Tyra what she didn't want to become. Yes. So that was like and did our job. Because there was also so there was beauty. I guess what I'm saying is we had so many stories going. In another show, you just wouldn't be able to go into Tyra's house. And we went into everybody's house. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of hate Buddy Garrett. He's kind of set up early on as kind of this foil to Coach Taylor. And then it's somewhere around the fifth or sixth episode of season one where the kids at school are picking on Minka or Lila. Yeah. And we've yeah. got this beautiful scene with Buddy Garrett underneath the bleachers. And all of a sudden, yeah, he, he leaves, he the, says game some, he leaves the football game to go yeah. talk to his daughter, who's basically being called out by other yeah. kids in school and being told. Well, that even she's, as you hear that, I'm thinking if you just play a little explosions in the sky, I'm going to start crying. <laughs> you do. But you also now start you to. Love <laughs> You start to go, wait a minute, this Buddy Garrity guy, although he's a schmuck and although he's all these other things, he loves his daughter and you relate. So now he's three-dimensional and now we care about Buddy Garrity. Who would have thought after watching that pilot that you would have cared about Buddy Garrity? Yeah. Right. Speaking of caring, I want to talk to you about this is extremely important because I brought you on the show and Stacey and I brought you on here specifically, number one, because you can't tell the story of Friday Night Lights without Jason Kadams. But number two, this season four, it's kind of unheard of in the history of television. I know Peter Burke was very adamant that these kids would graduate Jason Street. You were very adamant that he's not going to walk again. These are all TV tropes that have happened in the past. You know, main characters ending up in the same college that they all, you know. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Friday Night Lights was not going to be that kind of show. So you had the unenviable task in season four 
you and the rest of the writer's room of basically recreating the show from scratch almost. I mean, Coach mm-hmm. has been fired. He's now in East Dillon. Jason Street is gone. Smash Williams is gone. Tyra Collette is gone. Lila Garrity's gone. gone. Riggins and Saracen have graduated and are no longer connected to the football team. And Julie and Tammy are still at Dillon High, separated from Coach. Mm-hmm. So what were you and the rest of the writer's room thinking as you broke story on these final episodes in season three, leading right. into season four? Were you as panicked yeah. as I was that the show was going <laughs> to fall apart? Yeah, Because as I said before, I mean, this isn't the first time in the history of television that there's been a major shakeup midway through a show. But it is, to the best of my knowledge, one of the only times in the history of television where it was actually pulled off. Well, yes, I was terrified. Absolutely. (laughs) Good. Because I was too. (laughs) Also, it was at a different time in television. I think it's become more common in TV to make some major moves like that and make changes. You know, like I came from a place where television it was all about like, you know, the same people in this. And as you said before, we spent $100,000 on this set. We're going to shoot it. We're paying this actor $50,000 an episode. We're going to use them in every episode. Yeah. Right. Right. Season three, we had to make a decision about what season three was going to be about. At some point, we sort of said that it's going to be about graduating. That's going to be the theme of the season. You know, it's about graduation because we wanted to be authentic to what the experience was like. We all signed on for this. This is the kind of show where you graduate and go to college or don't go to college and leave Dylan or don't leave Dylan. That's what we all signed on for from the beginning. And that was what we sort of owed ourselves and owed the audience to tell that story. What yeah. Are you going to get into college or not? Is she going to get out of Dylan or not? You know, what's going to happen to Smash and Saracen and all those people? And then it became a question of of, okay, so what do we do to sustain the show and what happens, you know? And that's the idea of Coach having to rebuild this new team, you know, in this other side of town that we didn't even know about for the first three seasons. (laughs) (laughs) The idea came from that and that we realized we were going to have to sort of rebuild and introduce a new team and these new guys. And we wanted to do that in a way where you weren't going to say, oh, there's the new street. Yeah, there's the Riggins. Yeah. That's why we wanted to make it a completely different place and different world so that it felt like people were dealing with different stuff than mm-hmm. this. So the Michael B. Jordan was dealing with mm-hmm. different stuff than what Saracen was dealing with. Yeah. yeah. Not less or not more, but it was different. That was the idea behind it. And I didn't know it would work. And I had this experience because I was like, I love the Panthers. You know, I just love the Panthers. And how am I going to not love the Panthers? You know? Yeah. I remember I was in the editing room early on in season four, might've been the first episode or the second episode. I can't remember, but Tammy came out and she was like giving a speech at her school. I guess she was now the principal of the school mm-hmm. and she was giving a speech at the school or maybe it was like a pep rally or whatever. And she came out and she got booed off the stage because mm-hmm. everybody's mad at coach for leaving, you know? And yeah. so they booed Tammy Taylor. And when they booed Tammy Taylor, I was like, the Panther. <laughs> I was like telling you, I was, that was it. You know what I mean? All those years I spent, I didn't just watch the show. I did the show. I lived, yeah. it, lived it every day and every night for three years. Oh, and all it took was that what you 
with Tammy Taylor. You're done. <laughs> Man, I'm you done got Shady McCoy like, there. Now I'm done with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was that quick too. I remember specifically like you guys did such a wonderful job of introducing these characters, but not beating us over the head with their new storylines. Yeah. yeah. Like I remember specifically. Like you're saying it's not, this is the new Riggins and this is the new fall in love with yeah. this guy. Like slow. Burn. But I remember it was like somewhere around like the fourth or fifth episode. And so spoiler alert to everyone who's listening to this podcast. But like me. So Somewhere around the fourth or fifth episode, there was a scene with Michael B. Jordan and his mom. And I was bawling my eyes out watching it. And I was like, when did I start to care about this character? It was so subtle. You guys just slowly started telling us these stories, but you didn't just, you know, you didn't get rid of Riggins and everybody else Mm -hmm. in the process. You just started peppering in more and more of their story. And by the end of it, I cared just as much about Vince and all these characters. I mean, I love these characters. Yes, we were lucky to get these wonderful actors too. Yes. Oh, Angela. Yeah, Yeah, Angela and I mean, Journey and Madison and Matt and I mean, all of them. Michael it's B. just a testament to yeah. the writing, too, that to take it from one high school we were so in love with to another high school, then like everybody came along the journey. I don't remember any audiences being like, I'm, I'm done. You should end it in no. season three. Like, nope. <laughs> no. I care more. Season four is one of my favorite seasons of the show for personal reasons, because I had a lot of material in it. But it was yes, also just, <laughs> just in general, I just think it's such a compliment to you guys as writers and what you were capable of doing to turn this show on its ear in this moment. And it's really fascinating for me to go back and watch because obviously as an actor in season three, when I was living it, I didn't know when you guys were talking about redistricting what that was going to mean. Mm-hmm. And so going back and rewatching, I was like, I didn't realize that they'd introduced that concept of redistricting and yeah, potentially being Dillon. a different high school. Yeah. I mean, that comes in like episode 10 or nine or something like right, that right, of season right. three. Yeah. So you guys as writers, you knew that that's where the show was going. Obviously, as a fan of the show and as an actor on the show, I didn't know until season four that like this was really going to, we're really following through with this East Dillon thing. <laughs> we're really doing yeah. this? We're really doing <laughs> but, but, yeah. red but I love it. It goes back to what we were saying, though. It's, you know, another show would be coach goes to Texas Junior Tech and all the yeah. players follow him and all, and that's where Tammy yeah. goes. And she's now, you know, a guidance counselor. And that's not realistic. Say by the real. college years. Yeah, it's <laughs> after dark, I always say. <laughs> to use the 90210 reference. Yeah, you guys just did a wonderful job of making I that I do transition. have a, this is a completely sidebar selfish question and you don't have to name names and you also don't have to answer the question. Are there times that actors come to you and pitch you just terrible story ideas? Do actors come and pitch ideas? They're terrible. <laughs> um, let me think about this. Generally speaking, my experience with actors pitching things, I'm trying to think of anybody who's just pitched a really bad idea. I'm sure that's happened, but I never really think about it that way. I think when you do television, you know, you're working in a collaborative art form. Yeah. And then when you're the showrunner, you're kind of at the epicenter of the collaboration, you know, because you're dealing with everybody, yeah. the actors and the directors mm-hmm. and the producers, also like the network, all these different, and the audience, all these things are orbit and you're kind of at the center of it. So I always kind of like try to take feedback and notes in a certain way. And sometimes that certain way is not literal. In other words, if somebody is giving you a note, or I should say like a pitch for something that this character can do, it might be like this idea is not going to be 
something I could write, you know, but this actor is feeling this for a certain reason. This actor is feeling this because it's like, there's more of my story to tell. There's something about the way the story is being told that I feel like there's more for me to do. And I want to do that. So that's the way I kind of experience it. Look, you can't please all the people all the time. You know, sometimes actors wish they could do more, wish they could do something different and you can't accommodate that. But a lot of times you can. And you know, when you start out, you can sort of be a little defensive. After all, you write these things and you spill your yeah. blood and guts and you, they're not just like random things. You're mining all the stuff from your life. It's deeply personal. Even though I'm writing about, as we said, not my experiences. I didn't grow up in Texas and Dylan and play football, but you're mining all your life and your personal stories. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. You know, there's a certain like defense mechanism you have if somebody says they want it to be something different. What I've learned is that I really want to listen you know, when people have thoughts, because it doesn't necessarily take away from the script or the show or anything from it. But there might be an opportunity there to take something further in a different direction. But I think you wanted like a more fun answer. <laughs> no, no, you know I what? Love, Th I love you and Jeffrey Reiner too. You and Jeffrey Reiner both. There's like an innate love of actors that you guys have that I like. And that does not always happen all the time because we are impossible, first of all. But second of all, that like, that's not necessarily the way that it works, but that it's always just like comes from a place of love over the process and the factors and of the whole storytelling. It's No, absolutely. And your That's answer right. may not be sexy, but it's exactly why I think this show worked the way that it did, because there wasn't ego. The ego was dead yeah. at the door. If you got actors constantly bothering you, I know for me personally, I'd probably be like, screw you. But I think that your mentality of it is, hey, look, I'm going to listen. I'm going to take it in. There wasn't ego being sacrificed in the process. And that's why I think the show survived. And I think you that's know, a testament to you. You, you know? know, early on, I did a show early on in my career. And I got so many notes, network notes on the show. Mm. Never in my life before or since I get so many notes. It was almost like, wow, it's like, I can't believe they have all this stuff to say. You know? <laughs> At some point I was like, I was thinking, how do I deal with this? You know, because I was not like now I have the right to say, like, I disagree if I disagree. But at the time, you know, you're a young showrunner and you're like yeah. any show, this could be your last show. I came up with this way of addressing it for myself, which is that there are no bad notes. There are only bad rewrites. In other words, oh. the notes that you get are the notes that you get. What you do with them is up to you. You know, and so like I basically it was like I'm just, I'm not going to like write anything that lessens what the story is. I'm going to make it better. And my job is to filter through all this feedback that I'm getting and figure out how to make something work better. There are really great writers who can't really be showrunners. You know, I really do think you need to have this gene in a way of being able to say like, look, I'm going to approach this as we're in a collaborative art form. It's all about like trying to be able to like sort of take in what people are saying and process it and figure out a way to address it, but still like, you know, holding to your vision of the show because somebody has to provide clarity, you know, especially on a show like Friday Night Lights where it's a wild ride. You know, you've yeah. got like 30 characters that we're following and eight storylines in an episode and you've got people like improving and all this stuff is going on. And you need to be the person who's steering that ship. You know? Really quickly for our audience, if you had to describe what a showrunner is to somebody who's not in television, what would you say? 
Right. So a showrunner in television is the person who basically runs the show. More often than not, it's the writer. Sometimes it's not the writer now, but usually it's the person who either has written the pilot or takes on the show and goes through sort of every aspect of it, from the writing of the episodes to casting to working with directors, working with production designers and casting directors, editors, and also typically will be the main interface with the studio and the network. You'll also be dealing with things like making sure the show is on budget. The line producer is the person who's actually Mm -hmm. doing that, Mm -hmm. but ultimately the show is relying on the showrunner making a show that's producible. Basically in charge of everything. You oversee everything. Unfortunately for my family, you're the first to arrive and the last to leave. You know, you're there at the very beginning coming up with often it's a pitch and then you're there the last mix when you're mixing the final episode. So it's a long run. When you talk about like notes and actor pitching things and actors pitching things and studios pitching, networks pitching things, that's the true test for a showrunner is how to hold it all because it's like yeah. sometimes you're just exhausted sometimes there's like, too much you know it's too much yeah it's a skill set i mean beyond what you're describing to me is beyond being an amazing writer there's the juggling act that you have all to pull off and i mean from the few times that i produced projects in my life i've realized this is not something i enjoy <laughs> there's a really good documentary i think on hbo about showrunners and i watched it and i was like yeah i cannot do that yeah right there's yeah. some people it's not for them you know yeah. some people who are you know when i was probably 14 15 years old i remember i would go to a diner near my house and i would watch the short order cook making like breakfast when it was during a busy time mm-hmm. And that was like my dream because he was like cooking like all these things at once. And you know, it all came in. I was just watching mesmerized. And at one point after I became a showrunner, Kathy, my wife said to me, Jason, you got your dream. Yeah. It's absolutely. It's interesting that you bring that up because when I was in college, I worked in a fast food, like a basically a fast food restaurant, and they never let me off the fry station because I was not, I was not capable of managing all those things at once. So it is. It's a skill set. Yeah, you can stick to the fries. Try not to burn them. Jeez, guy. Just learn your lines and stand right there. Yeah, just stand there and look pretty. (laughs) Buddy, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us. I really appreciate it. It was just fascinating and amazing to pick your brain here. And I know Stacey has some stuff that she wanted to close out with. I do. I want to wrap up and tell you a big thank you for me and my entire family. My little brother is autistic and the work that you have done with parenthood and now with As We See It, it like speaks to my whole family and for us to see those voices up there, it means the world to us. And just thank you. Thank you so much, Stacey. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I also, I want to thank you guys for doing what you're doing here. This is amazing. You're continuing the legacy. That is it for season four, episode one. But please join us next time for season four, episode two, entitled After the Fall. But until then, clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mindy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to Pod at gmail.com. And follow us on social media. I'm on Instagram at Stacey Oristano. And I'm also on Instagram at underscore Derek Phillips. Check us out on YouTube and blackbarrelmedia.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.